1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. So let's read this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living sensually, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, well, this is, um, I forget what number it is in the sermon, or in the sermon series. It is number eight in uh, our series through First Peter, um, and I titled this, Live No Longer for Human Passions, But for the Will of God. Um, and as, as we've been going through First Peter, we're, we're looking at how Peter exhorts us as Christians to stand firm in the true grace of God. Uh, living as elect exiles. So if you remember your, remember your times, uh, maybe studying different wars or conflicts um, in human history, one aspect of these conflicts that is usually highlighted in a historical survey is the turning point. It's the point in, with, in the which the war, when one side takes a decided advantage and then moves in a positive direction towards victory. Think of the American Civil War in, our, in this case. Uh, it's a war that's the bloodiest war in the history of the United States as far as soldiers being killed who were from the United States. One where the number of American soldiers who perished equals about that of all of the other conflicts that we've been involved in combined. Um, it was a, a, a war that started with a country divided and it ended with a country attempting to rebuild what it had torn down. Um, it pitted North versus South, Union versus Confederacy, friend versus friend, brother versus brother. And generally speaking, the battle that's known as the turning point of the, of the Civil War was one that was fought just over an hour of here, an hour from here, the Battle of Gettysburg. It was when the Confederacy had pushed its way north into the Union uh, territory, and it was in high spirits, the, the Confederacy was, because they had just come off of a couple of wins in Virginia, and they thought that they had the Union on their heels. So they pushed up into Union territory, but then their army was intercepted in the small town of Gettysburg, and a three-day battle ensued. And as that bloody back-and-forth battle went on, it eventually ended with the retreat of the Confederacy. 
But, but this battle took place in July of 1863, roughly halfway through the entirety of the war, which started in 1861 and went through 1865. So while the battle was raging in Gettysburg, do you think that the soldiers knew that it would be the turning point of the war? Do you think that they were motivated by the end of the war in sight? Probably not. How would they know that this was the case at that time? They didn't have... They couldn't see this in the foreseeable future. This is the benefit that we have now when we study history. We know how it plays out. Therefore, we can look back and see where the tipping point occurs and then look at the rest of the war in light of what that in light of what we know will happen. So Peter here is giving us this exhortation. It'd be like our commanding officer if we were in a war, fighting in a war, telling us that we're on the way toward victory. It's just over the horizon. Keep pressing because we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. The turning point has happened. We're going to win this war, and we know it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Now think of that. How would we respond to that news if we were one of those soldiers? We'd be excited as long as we knew this wasn't just a motivational technique, right? But if this was true then we would be excited. We, we, we would live with jubilee, with hope. Um, the discomfort, the fighting, the pain, the suffering, the death, and all things associated with war are soon to be over. We know that. It's in the, we, it will be in the past soon. But as soldiers, we wouldn't be able to just let our guard down because the war is still raging and we'll still be fighting in more battles to come. Even after the turning point of the Civil War, there were still two more years of fighting, two more years of skirmishes and battles um, where people lost their lives. The battle was still raging. Peter wants us to understand that because of the work in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, we know that sin and death is defeated. The war is over, but the battle for us is still raging, still raging around us. He is helping us see what is often referred to as the already, but not yet. That Christ has already defeated sin, death, and Satan, but we're not yet living in the fully consummated kingdom of God. His kingdom is continuing to grow on earth, and it's not, but it's not fully completed at this time in human history from the human perspective. So instead of telling Christians to pack it up, kick back, and relax, because we know the outcome, and it's that we win, Peter tells them to arm themselves. Get ready to fight. Get ready to defend yourself. Don't get complacent because if you do, the enemy will surely sweep in and will take you by surprise. Think of the theme of 1 Peter, which helps Christians learn how to stand firm as exiles in a land that's not our home. We're looking forward to the promises of God, but at the same time, we're learning to live among a world that's hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter wants his readers to be motivated to live for Christ by his spirit because sin no longer defines us. But at the same time, we must be guarded because the reality is that the battle still rages around us. He gives Christians theological truths that help us to understand how to live lives to honor God. He also gives practical advice to Christians who are no longer motivated by human passions, but instead seek to live motivated by the will of God. 
And we'll look at this section in two portions. The first six verses are a call to remember Christ's victory. And then verses 7 to 11 are a call to live now the rest of our time to the glory of God because of that victory. So verses 1 to 6, remember Christ's victory. Verses 7 to 11, go and live in light of that victory. And the first thing we might notice when we look at verse 1 is the word, therefore. Does anyone know why the word, therefore? What should we think to ourselves when we see the word, therefore, in Scripture? What is it, therefore, right? There's other ways of saying it, too. But what is it, therefore? I see a word, therefore. What's it, therefore? Um, as, we, as we do that, it, it's never, as we see the word, therefore, in Scripture, it's never there to show a hard stop and a new beginning between two thoughts. Instead, it's used to connect thoughts, to solidify arguments that the writers were making, and to add emphasis going forward. So that being said, this section, uh, chapter 4, is actually connecting back to chapter 3 and beyond in, in Peter's letter. And he continues on the same thought where he spoke of the blessing of suffering for righteousness' sake. He alludes a little bit back to 1 Peter 2.24, where he wrote, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins on the tree in order that we might die or have no part in sin and live to righteousness. As we've already talked about Peter, he's calling these Christians to arms because this isn't peacetime. These aren't physical arms such as swords or bow and arrows or daggers at that time, but rather arm your minds. That's what he says. Similar to the wording in 1 Peter 1, 13 when he said, prepare your minds for action, be sober-minded, and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here again, he's saying, get ready. Don't just arm your minds by filling them with information, but arm your minds as Christ did. Some of you might have a security system at home or at your place of business. And this is Peter saying, arm that thing. Don't just walk out the door without forgetting or with but and forget to set it because that's not doing any good that the only good that's doing is to the criminal who's going to break into your house or into your place of business so arm your mind as christ did for whoever suffers in the flesh ceases from sin this can be a little bit of a confusing statement if we just fly past it because it seems to say that we might never sin again if we just fix our minds but that isn't what's being stated here. When we think of Christ's suffering in the flesh here, uh, we might think our minds might also kind of connect to what Paul talks about when he talks about the flesh. Often he uses the term or the phrase in the flesh. And when, um, when Paul is using that, he is talking about someone often who is unconverted before they have come to Christ, living in the flesh in that way like as Peter here would say, living for human passions. Um, but Peter is using this word differently. He's talking of, of the physical body. The flesh here refers, in reference to Christ, he's speaking of his, his Christ's human body, his physical body. The Apostles' Creed says that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, and suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. These are historical statements showing us that God, in fact, became a man and physically, in human body, in his human body, suffered at the hands of other men. His physical body was crucified. He died and it was buried. That was what Peter is getting at here when he says the flesh. Because 
Jesus suffered in his physical body, we too should prepare to potentially have that happen. Now, at the same time, it doesn't always happen every, every day, 100% of the time. Just like a majority of the times when you set your security system, it's not used. Um, it might not be called into action because it's not every night that someone is trying to break in. But essentially what Peter is saying is have a laser focus as Jesus did. Live with resolve. Being motivated by what Christ did for you when he suffered in his body, in his flesh. For anyone to do what Jesus did, they had to be motivated by something beyond the current situation that they're in. Their mind had to be focused on something beyond the state of suffering to the point even of the point of death. What was it that motivated Jesus to suffer this way? He knew that his suffering was not for nothing, but rather he did it out of love for his people. The same people who Peter is writing this letter to, Christ's church, us. He endured suffering and death even though he was perfect and he wasn't owed the wages of sin because he never had sinned. But he did it in our place so that we could live forever with him and that God would be glorified. Peter's telling the reader to adopt that mindset. One that looks past the temporal pain and suffering associated with persecution on this earth and looks forward to life forever in the presence with the Savior who has suffered for us. Now, him saying whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin also doesn't mean that we will stop sinning on this side of glory, but after, but rather that sin no longer defines us because, because of what Christ did. It could easily be translated, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh is done with sin. It's behind you. It's gone. It no longer defines you. If you're willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, then you're showing that you have your hope fixed on the future as well. You're no longer living for a life that's controlled by or pursuing sin. It shows that you're willing to forget that old life, to have it put behind you, and now you can live like this no more. Instead of living, in the, pa- living the past lives of sin and debauchery, you've turned to the freedom of living for the glory of God. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean to forget where you came from, because when some of us remember that, it helps us ground us in the reality of now where he has brought us. I know that's true for me. Um, some sitting in this room right now could say, man, there's no way I would ever have guessed that I'd be sitting in the seat right now. And every one of us can and should say, we wouldn't be here, but by the grace of God, go I. Amen. So you should remember that as one of Christ's people, at once you were not a people, but you are now God's people. At once you hadn't received mercy, but now you receive mercy. When this reality hits us, it changes us. It changes who we are, and it changes how we live. Ultimately, this is the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. And it comes out as fruit. Fruit of a life that has been transformed by the grace and mercy of this glorious God. This is true of every believer that we have progressively been shaped throughout our time in fellowship with our King and we continue to be shaped into His image until we meet Him and He fully glorifies us one day. 
The Holy Spirit is continuing to sanctify you even now. Now, what happens when this message of the gospel changes us and family or friends or teammates who knew us in our former lives find out? What happens the next time after this transformation that you're invited to go out or to live as you once lived? Peter says, he says it here. Similarly to how he has mentioned it previously, they will be surprised and they will malign you. They'll speak critically of you. They'll slander you because they don't understand and often because their conscience is weighed down on that, is weighing down on them. This is the third time actually in this, in this letter in 1 Peter alone that he said something along these lines. In chapter 2 he said, Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And secondly, then in chapter 3, he said, Be prepared to make a defense for the hope that's in you, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good work, good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. On all three of these instances, Peter makes it sound as if it will surely happen. You will have those who deny Christ that will speak ill of you. I imagine some of us in this room can remember a time that this might have happened. Maybe multiple times. If, if you took a stand on an issue and backed it up with biblical evidence, because this is what guides and shapes our worldview, then this might be something that you've experienced on your own. And if it hasn't happened yet, it probably will if you faithfully follow Jesus. If you believe and live by the truths of what Jesus taught in the scriptures, say, about marriage, or about who he is, or about the sanctity of human life, or about homosexuality, or about human beings' identity as sinners and our desperate need for him, you're going to be looked down on and slandered in certain circles. We see it more and more as our culture continues to throw away any biblical ethics and moves towards a morality that each person defines on their own. You may see this in your workplace, or in school, or in the public square, but remember and take courage in the fact that this is nothing new. Peter wrote this almost 2,000 years ago, and yet you can use it now to encourage fellow believers, and the Holy Spirit uses it today to encourage us. Maybe those who get called racist, or a bigot, or a homophobe, or a terrorist, or a myriad of other ill-placed insults that are used to describe Christians faithfully living out their beliefs in a secular culture. But what does Peter say to do when this happens? Does he say that we should get angry? Does he say that we should start calling them names back? Does he say that we should fight back every time someone slanders a Christian? This is why he said to arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. Who else? was slandered as he stood trial for crimes that he didn't even commit? Who else was hated and had insults hurled at him to no end when he carried his cross to the place where he would eventually be put to death on it? Suffering under the weight of my sin, he was suffering under the weight of my sin, under the weight of your sin. Jesus Christ did this obediently so that those sins could be crucified with him, no longer weighing us down because he's removed that burden. This is what can and will motivate us to persevere in the midst of adversity 
in the midst of the battles that rage around us. Peter says, remember the truths that are found in Scripture. That one day, they, they, that one day, those who have hurled the insults at you, as well as those more importantly who have insulted their creator, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the, will, the living and the dead. Christ's judgment here is universal. It includes everyone who has ever lived. His authority has no boundaries. And, his, and this is comforting to those of us who are his people. No one else has this type of authority. No one else has the breadth of authority that Jesus Christ does. There is only one who is able to say that he is able, or the only one that is able to judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ, the one who said, if the world hates you, know that they, that they have hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The one who also said, all authority in heaven, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. The one that can make this statement, it's Christ who began speaking of the suffering in the flesh in the beginning of this chapter. Remember his victory over sin and death. This is the truth in which Peter stands and that we should be standing too. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord because he is the victor. Peter then gives some practical applications uh, as to how to live as he shifts a bit in verse 7. And he tells us now how to go and live considering the victory that Jesus has won. Remember the war against Satan and sin is death is debt and death is done and won already. And here are some practical ways that you as Christ's people can live in the midst of the skirmishes and the battles that continue to happen around you. He puts this statement, the end of all things is at hand in the middle, which Almost seems a little bit out of place, but it's not, considering the eschatological or future-focused hope that he is attempting to instill in the readers and hearers of this letter. The end of all things is at hand. The final day of judgment is approaching us. Each day that goes by, we are one day closer to when Christ returns and consummates his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is a call to urgency. Once again, a call to remain steadfast, prepared, diligent, and ready for that day. And while you wait, don't sit by complacently or idly, but rather do these three things. When you do, you honor Christ the King and glorify God because these are fruits that are brought on by the one who's changed you. So we can also remember that God has given us good gifts to help us along, and the church is one of those good gifts. And this is what Peter is speaking of here. Practical ways that we, as God's people, can live in community with each other and arm ourselves by thinking as Christ did as we wait for the return of our King. Each of these could be a topic for a sermon on its own, but as we close, we'll look at the three exhortations that Peter gives here in verses 7 to 11. Uh, Pray expectantly, Love earnestly and serve willingly. So pray expectantly, love earnestly, and serve willingly. First, pray expectantly. 
We know from the testimony of Scripture that Christ has commanded us to pray. He's also showed us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Even Jesus' prayer as he modeled it for us is one of eschatological hope. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is an expectant prayer. In a way, Peter is contrasting the actions of believers over and against the actions described in verses is in verse 3 that describe unbelievers. We, as Christians, are reminded to remain self-controlled, no longer living for human passions, but for the will of God. This is the opposite of the thought of eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die, which is a flippant way of looking at life as if, as, as if life is meaningless. To the, but the Christian worldview is one that gives both future hope to look forward to and also a current purpose where the Lord has placed us now. We're called to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. Being of sound mind, we're able to think clearly. We're able to continue to pray as well as recognize opportunities that God has given us to bless others around us. Peter is helping us to continue to remember to remain unwavering in our prayer and that we must be ready to spring into action at all times. Praying for others to come to the knowledge and understanding of Christ. That they too would be in the fellowship of the believers and with God. Praying that the Lord would give us strength in times of weakness. Praying that he would use us as his instruments so that God would be glorified. And secondly, love earnestly. What does it mean to love earnestly? It's not just saying, I'm going to tolerate you and go about your business. This is a call to true, sincere love. A type of love that's found in 1 Corinthians 13. Love that is patient and kind. We went over, a, over this on a, in a Sunday school class last summer. Yeah. Love that doesn't boast. It isn't rude. It isn't self-seeking. This love is a love that's found in the lives of those who realize that we love because he first loved us. And Peter says this kind of love covers a multitude of sins. How does it cover a multitude of sins? What does that mean? It puts our wants, this kind of love puts our wants and our desires down the list and places others above ourselves. It refuses to hold grudges for, for petty disagreements. And it's quick to offer the hand of fellowship or forgiveness when someone wrongs us. Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Above all. It's of primary importance. Remember that he is saying within the context, he is saying this within the context of the church. Believers, love other believers. Jesus gave a new commandment to his disciples that they would love, that they are to love one another. Why is love emphasized and treated with such high regard in Scripture? Because it's the glue that binds us together in Christ. What are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The biblical call to love is another, to love one another is another call to action. It's different than how it's often used, or the word is often used to be to describe a subjective feeling. Biblically, the word love is paired with action. It's used as a verb. Jesus said that if his people love one another, then others will see and know that we are his disciples. This is no ordinary type of love, 
but a love that's rooted and grounded in the work of Christ first and foremost. The greatest act of love has in fact covered your sins, and if you're a believer, you are called to reflect that type of love to others who have also been redeemed. Christ taking on human flesh, dwelling among his people, and being crucified and raised again on the third day. This is the foundation of the Christian life. Faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Because love will last forever. And it was active, sacrificial, humble, perfect love of Jesus Christ that first brought you into fellowship with God. And with his people. It's also his act of love that keeps you now and will keep you forevermore. Can it get any better than being loved and cared for by the creator of the universe? It can't. Lastly, serve willingly. The Lord gives his people talents and abilities in order to serve, strengthen, and edify his church. We find a list of spiritual gifts in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. And this alludes to what Paul says in Romans 12, 3, which we'll be getting to in the coming weeks, about how there's a diverse, there are diverse members of the same body. Or we are diverse members of the same body. Through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can act in love towards others by serving them with the gifts the Lord has given us might be by serving as a Sunday school teacher or a community group leader or in children's ministry or the nursery or helping with live stream or sound, playing an instrument or singing. There's many different ways that one can serve the Lord in the context of the church. And Peter is exhorting Christians to do all of this willingly and with joy because we do this considering the victory that Christ has won for us. And as I close, I'll share a quick story of how when I was starting to study this passage um, for this evening, I got to verse 9 where it talks of showing hospitality, uh, which is a fruit of the love that we have um, in Christ. And I remember back to the first time Jenny and I came to Proclamation in 2018. So we were meeting at Florin at that time, um, and I think we had... I think we got there right around on time, and we snuck in to grab a seat somewhere back in the back. Um, and it came to the time of past the peace, which we weren't coming from a church that was generally doing that. I grew up in one that did it, but I don't, I don't know that Jetty had ever really done that before. And it wasn't a normal thing for us. Um, but we came to the time of past the peace, and we hadn't, uh, or the, the first people that ran back to greet us were Elena and Molly de Bruin. They came back, and they welcomed us, introduced themselves, and um, I'll be honest, this is one of the major influences in us deciding to stay here. Um, We knew that proclamation, or we knew what proclamation believed theologically. We knew because we could read it online. We knew the teaching was solid. We knew that we could be fed in word and sacrament because we'd listened to some sermons online already. Um, But... This solidified our decision because we saw a congregation putting their theology into action. It wasn't just all up here. It was active. Um, So they weren't the only ones either. People here went out of their way to make us feel comfortable, to get to know us. Um, From people introducing themselves right after the service and 
I think we probably stayed for about an hour afterwards talking to people, to the Davidsons inviting us over to lunch uh, after the service. This is what Peter is talking about, the overflow of the love of Christ pouring out as fruit that's tangible. The body of Christ is where the weary and tired can go to find respite from the battle that rages outside. We gather today, or we gather together to pray expectantly, to love earnestly, and to serve willingly so that God would be glorified and that we would be armed with the same way of thinking that Christ was. Until Christ returns or calls us home, remember that Christ has won the victory. And now, go and live the rest of your time with that in mind. That reality, that truth that should ground us. When we do this, we, along with Peter, will gladly say, to Jesus Christ belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.